so I'm going to get rolling. But I want to share with you, I want to share with you a big praise. I'll share this with the church family, but um, this is really awesome. Um, what a difference a week makes. Um, let me read this. I just got this text from Steve Schmeckel this morning. Good morning. Sarah continues to recover. The plan is to wean her off oxygen today completely, monitor her for six or seven hours. Depending on the timing of that, we actually may get to come home today. Tomorrow is more likely. Her recovering is like watching a miracle unfold every day. Thank you for continued prayer, Steve and Melanie. Um, what a difference a week makes. Um, she was not in good shape. She was not in good shape. But <clears throat> if you're not aware, I don't know if I said this last Sunday, Sarah's been battling Lyme's disease for a couple of years. So that on top of the Lyme's disease is really, it's tough. It's a big battle. So, so uh, when they took her in, it was not a good situation. So praise the Lord. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's get started. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. And I want to I want to kind of bounce back to some of the things we talked about last week, and I want to give a biblical framework for why this is a spiritual fight. And, and I got some questions actually from some of you this week about why 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 even discuss CRT? Why is this why is this important to discuss critical race theory? Is this necessary? Is this needed? And I would say to you emphatically, emphatically yes, and I want to give you some, I want to give you some ex, um, examples that even just this week have come to light that, that will bear out the importance of this. And uh, thanks to Rick Presley, it seems like every day he's spamming my email inbox with more stuff to, to, to consider. And I'm like, I got to just stop reading his emails because it's just too much information. Um, but... Let's have a word of prayer and, and then um, get into this. We're going to need some wisdom, so let's, let's talk to the one who gives wisdom. Father, um, we don't want to just be angry and attacking and just negative and, and down on this and down on that, but, but there is a time when we need to be discerning, and there is a time when we need to be watchful. There is a time when we need to sound the warning and Lord, you know my heart. I believe this is one of those times that, that within the church in general, specifically the American church, that, that we better sound the alarm hard and, and loud. And so today it's my desire to, to open the word, to, to look at some things here from the word, to, to look at what's happening around us. And God, I pray that you would just help our hearts to, to be discerning in the days that we live in. Um, it seems that every day we wake up and something different has shifted and moved, and, 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 but the one constant is the fact that you are God and you are on the throne, and that you are accomplishing your purposes in spite of how evil this world seems to be getting. And so we rest in that. Thank you for being here with us. We thank you for the spirit who guides us into truth. We need that desperately this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. Um, as, you're, as you're getting your eyes ready for that, um, how did we define critical theory last week? We're not even talking about critical race theory, but critical theory in general. What is, what is the premise of critical theory? Anybody remember? Because I think we need to get this kind of in, in, ingrained in our thinking here. What's the basis of critical thinking? 
Critical thinking on the whole sounds really good, like we should be critical, we should be thinking through things, right? And, and, but what is critical theory? Come on, you're discouraging the teacher here. It, it can be racism. Critical theory can apply to a lot of things. Critical theory is being used in our country in regard to just the fight that we're having over vaccines and non-vaccines. Do you understand that? Critical theory basically says this, and, and it's, it's, it's rooted in, and I know you, you keep hearing me say this, and you're like, I'm tired of hearing you say this word, but it's true. It's rooted in Marxism, okay? It's rooted in Marxism, and the whole, the whole idea of critical theory is, is to pit two sides against one another. And, and the way that critical theory achieves this objective is there has to be somebody who is doing the oppression and there has to be somebody who's oppressed, okay? Um, you think about it, in, in, in just in our lifetime, do we see that in more than just race in our country? One of the big areas where we're seeing critical theory really brought in, and we talked about this with intersectionality, is when you get several of these groups that line up, is with the area of, of gender. The area of gender in the area of the homosexual agenda. Critical theory is being used right there, okay? So, so if you are not gay, you are an oppressor. And if you are gay, you are the oppressed, okay? And so that's, that's the theory behind this, okay? You say, well, this is just a social thing. No, this is a spiritual thing. This is a spiritual thing, and, and that's why I've taken us to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 3, we're going to read down through verse 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Paul here is giving his own personal testimony. And, and I would submit to you that, that these fights that we are facing are not just a social fight. And this is not just the church, uh, uh, you know, stepping out of our walls and going out to fight a social fight. This is a very spiritual fight. This is a very spiritual fight, and before we're done today, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of how this critical theory is being brought right to the doorstep of the church, right to the doorstep. Paul continues on, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So this is a spiritual war. It's not cultural. It's not societal. And, and the reason, and, and, and if you're taking notes, this is the main reason why this is a spiritual war. Critical race is trying to redefine the gospel. And any time that the gospel gets redefined, that's a spiritual war. And, and critical race is defining the gospel this way, and we're going to get into this a little bit more as we have time. But basically what it's saying is this. Original sin is not the fact that man is in rebellion to God and that he's born in original sin. Original sin, when it comes to race, is what? What's the original sin? Go ahead and say it. Being born white, you are in original sin. And, and that's taught you're saying, you're making that up, PD. No, that is taught. If you are white, you are the original sinner. So if you're not white, do you need to be saved? 
Do you? What do you need to be? You ever heard of liberation theology? What do you need to be? You just need to be liberated. Okay? Is that an affront to the gospel? Okay, do you understand now why? I get a little worked up about this. Do you understand why this is so serious? Yeah, it's affecting society. It's affecting you and your workplaces. But it is affecting, it is affecting the gospel. And so when churches in there, and as I mentioned last week, and I mentioned some names, and that irritated a couple people, and I'm sorry, but I think we have to name some names. And here's the reality. When big-name people who at one time stood with the gospel are waffling on this, it's going to start infecting the books they write. It's going to infect the conferences where they speak. It's going to infect the other men that they associate with. And before long, we're going to be in one confusing malaise. And guess what? We're there. We're there. We're there. So this is a spiritual fight. And so what do you bring to a spiritual fight to fight? What do you bring to it? You better bring spiritual weapons, right? It's not just enough to be educated on this. It's not just enough, it's not just enough to, to, to read the other side, although that's important. It's not just enough to know. You have to bring spiritual weapons to a spiritual fight, okay? If I tell you we're going to meet at the OK Corral at 12 o'clock and we're going to have a duel, you don't show up with a knife. What do you show up with? What do you show up with, Zach? Big gun, yeah, right? Notice the nature of this fight. Notice the nature. We, we have to have divine power, verse 4, to destroy strongholds. Strongholds. That word strongholds means a fortress that's used to defend a position, okay? What, what is the main weapon that we have at our disposal that will destroy strongholds? God's word. And so we have to be convinced first and foremost that God's word applies to this situation. And then secondly, we've got to be discerning enough with the Holy Spirit directing us to get into the word and, and to get that out. And to get that out. So let me give you three ways that we fight against, against this idea and these ideas that come into the church. Let me give you three ways that we do that. First way we fight it is to fight it directly with the gospel, okay? So, so you say, well, that's just the answer for everything, and in a way it is, is it not? Is it not? What is the premise of the gospel? Give me some ideas that, that would fight against critical race theory that are in the gospel. We're all sinners, okay? And it has nothing to do with the color of my skin, correct? Okay, so in other words, we're all equal and on equal footing before God, right? That's not what critical race theory teaches, Okay, is that directly out of the Word of God, though? What else does the gospel tell us? We're made in the image of God. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, too. Okay, you're going to think I'm absolutely lost my mind, but I read it this week and I was like, there is a branch of critical race theory that teaches that white people are demons. Okay, basically, if, if they came in to teach us this morning, they would be teaching a room full of demons in their mind. Because of your race, you're demonic. Okay? What else does gospel teach us? What's the big... You've given me all the bad news of the gospel. What's the good news of the gospel do? What is, how does that help in our understanding of a critical race theory? 
there's hope for all of us. And it's not just that we're saved from our bad thinking, it's that we can be reconciled to God. And that's one of the things that whenever you get social gospel and you get, you get you know, false gospel, there's never an emphasis on being reconciled to God. There's never an emphasis on that. It's all about being reconciled to one another within certain constraints, but it's never about being reconciled to God. And that's our number one need. So we fight with the gospel, and secondly, we fight with a biblical understanding of what justice is. So I want us to look at two passages, an Old Testament and a New Testament, okay? Let's go back to God's law in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Of justice. Um, I read one of the greatest quotes on justice this week. Actually, I saw. Actually, I didn't read it. I saw it in a video. So several years ago, in a panel, uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur, was asked about social justice, and he said this: "Anytime you have to put a qualifier on the word justice, you've got a problem. Justice is justice. Now, is that not true? It's true. Justice is justice." So Deuteronomy chapter 16, let's, let's view God's view of justice. Um, in fact, even in the ESV Bible, it gives a little heading in chapter 16 for 18 to 20. It says justice right on the top of it, okay? So, so God has this little section in the law here. This is the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. He says, you shall appoint, verse 18, judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people, How? How do you judge with righteous judgment if you're a man? Can men truly judge with righteous judgment? No. No. Would you agree with me that probably the court system in our country is the greatest court system in the world? Is that a fair statement? Rick, you work in it. Is that a fair statement? Are there other countries that do it better? Okay. Yeah. You got a civics lesson and you didn't even pay for it. Okay. So you affirm that. You work in it. Does the justice system always get it right? Zach, Zach, how many times have you put lawbreakers behind bars only to have the justice system let them loose? Occasionally. Occasionally. Justice system doesn't always get it right. Why? Is it because it's terrible? No. It's because it, there are men involved in it, right? And, and, and as men, we're not going to always get it right. So God says you've got to judge with righteous judgment. What's implied in that? What's implied when you're judging with righteous judgment? Who's implied in this? You're going you're gonna to seek me. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna check in with me. Verse 19, here's what God says. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Boy, could we use that in Ohio government right now. Anyway, justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord the God, your God's giving you. When you, when you look at this text here, 
is justice colorblind? Is it? What's, she wears a blindfold the way, we, you know, the way we show her, right? The way we portray her. The only way you can have righteous justice is if you have God in charge of that righteous justice. And, and he makes it pretty clear here. If, if whoever you raise up as a judge better be, better be right down the middle here. No partiality and, and no perverting of justice. Okay, that's an Old Testament view of justice. How many would you like to live under that kind of justice? Sign me up. I'll live under that. Okay, let's look at a New Testament view of justice in Romans chapter 13. You're like, oh no, Romans 13, here we go. Here we go. Now what's he doing here? Okay, here is, here is a New Testament ethic, and, 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 and let's understand something here so that we don't get confused here. Because it was in the Old Testament, does that mean it doesn't apply to us today? You sure about that? Okay, good. Okay, has God changed the way he thinks about justice from the Old Testament to the New Testament? So if he says anything in the New Testament, can we take the Old Testament and put the New Testament together and have a full understanding of what he means by justice? Is that a fair statement? Okay. So Romans 13, let's look at verse 8. Owe no man, or owe to no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What word is not mentioned in those three verses that we're talking about? Justice, right? But is justice in those verses? What's the principle there that God's giving us in terms of justice? Rick, you're nodding your head. What is it? It's love. So, so justice, then at times, is even hard for us as believers, is it not then? Let's be honest, Christian, are there some people that are hard to love? There are. What are we called to do, though? We're called to love, okay? And, and we're called to treat them with love, okay? Who models that for us? It's Christ, right? Christ models that in that Christ, in the most unjust treatment of a person, demonstrates love. He unjustly is accused and put to death because we all deserve to be the ones dying, and he does it out of love. Okay? Just an observation. When, when, you, when you watch a mob that, that, is, that is motivated by critical race, do you see a lot of love? What do you see? You see the exact opposite, don't you? But before we step away from this, we've got to be honest. When most Christians react to that, what do you see? You see a lot of malice, don't you? 
You see a lot of malice, don't you? Do you see a lot of love? No. They make, I'll agree with that, they make it hard. They make it hard. But then I remind myself, I make it hard on Christ every day. I make it hard on him every day. And I'm not saying we have to be soft on our position, but we have to be biblical on our position. But there's a third way that we can fight against this. Um, remember, remember the admonition to the disciples where Christ says, um, a new commandment I give unto you that you what? You love one another. And then he goes on to say, by this what? By this the what? The world knows that you're what? By disciples, by the way that you love one another. I think there's, there's, there's a way that, that we have to consider, and it's in Ephesians chapter 2. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. And I would put it this way. We fight against these kinds of ideologies by the way that we exhibit the unity of the body of Christ. One of the things that sadly I'm becoming aware of, though, is this. The body of Christ is not unified. And, and one of the things I'm coming to this, and, and this may sound harsh, and I don't mean it to be, though. I'm beginning to think that those who espouse this theory are, may not even be a part of the body of Christ. Now, there are some who are, who are falsely led into it, who are, who are deceived by it, and I pray that they come out of it. But I think the ones that are leading this, I'm beginning to think that they are knowingly doing what they're doing. And that is another gospel, and you have to call that heresy. And heresy is pretty much on the outside of the camp. Now, I have to be careful, and we have to be careful. Because we identify the problem and we call it heresy doesn't make us better people. Okay, we've got to be careful with this. But look at Ephesians chapter 2. So, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, and it almost sounds like Paul's like, you know, but he's, he's just pointing out, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, he's talking about what happened early in the church. You have Jewish believers who really held on to their Jewish traditions, the biggest one being circumcision, and what would they do to all the Gentiles? What would they, what would they ask of them? You gotta be circumcised, man. We're so thankful you got saved, but you're really not a part of the club until you get circumcised. They might not have said it that way, but that's the way, the attitude that they gave, right? Remember, verse 12, that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Stop right there. I know we don't have the benefit of having lived in history, but if we were in the Ephesian church and we had experienced the Jew-Gentile thing, would that be our critical race theory discussion? It absolutely would be. It absolutely would be. If there were printing presses that were around in that time, they would have been writing books on this stuff. It appears in just about every one of Paul's, got, of Paul's letters, there's some kind of Jew-Gentile conflict going on, Okay. And you're nodding your head. I mean, it's right, right? It, yeah. And then you had Judaizers on one side who are whipping up the problem, right? Paul's trying to preach truth to this to settle it down, and the Judaizers are like, no, 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 no. Paul, you're one of us, remember? You're Pharisee and everything. 
Maybe you've forgotten what's going on here. And Paul says, here is simply the, here's the answer, folks. We have to remember that all of us were all far off and we've been brought near by Christ. Okay? Doesn't matter your ethnic background, doesn't matter your skin color, doesn't matter what your sexual orientation was before you came to Christ. You were all in the same boat. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. That's what's gotten lost here in the discussion. You want to know why the church is so fractured over this? We're not looking at the right person. We're not looking at the one who is our peace. And we're not following what he teaches. We're not following his commands. We're trying to make peace and manufacture peace in a different way. Anytime man tries to produce peace, he's going to produce conflict. Right? He's the one who has broken down his, in his flesh and dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. So here's the thing, and let's just use a little logic here for a second. If Christ died to reconcile arch enemies so that they can be one, if he died to accomplish that and it says that he's done that, if there is hostility, is that a Jesus problem or is that a people problem? It's a people problem. It's a people problem. And the problem isn't this group is wrong and we're right. The problem is both sides here aren't looking to Christ. So let's understand something here. What we're talking about here in espousing this 2 Corinthians 10 viewpoint will destroy any argument that is unbiblical. Would this work against evolution, this kind of thinking? Yeah, okay. It'll work, it'll work against critical race theory, too. So I want to delve into a couple things. And I want to give you, maybe some of you picked this up this week and saw this, and I apologize because now, now it's going to appear like I'm really scattered brain because i got about four or five different things that are all in technology here that I want to read to you, which I'm terrible with technology. Um, so the, the heading of this article, and it was posted on the National Review on August 19th of this week, okay? This is, and the heading is this, college training claims Christians and Americans are privileged and oppressors, okay? Let me read it to you. James Madison University student employees who led freshman orientation this year were subjected to training that claimed that people who identify as, okay, if you're this person, just raise your hand, okay, who are male... Straight, Zach, get your hand up, that's you. <sighs> Male, straight, cisgender, Christian, or American, if that's you, put your hand up. Do you know what you are? You are the oppressors. It used to read, male, straight, cisgender, American. A couple years ago, that's the way it would have read. Did you catch the new qualifier in there? 
Christian. In a mandated training video, student employees at the Virginia School were taught that oppression is the systemic subjugation of one social group by a more powerful social group for the social, economic, and political benefit of the more powerful social group. It's a rewriting of history. Have Christians ever been the most wealthy? Go back through church history. Were the Christians the wealthy ones? No. This is where it gets, and this is what I was talking about last week. The video said that an oppressor group has the power to define reality for themselves. Basically what they're saying is to Christians, you're not going in the authority of God's word. You define your own reality. You make your own rules. That's what they're saying. And, and so the, the rebuttal to that, the way they play back against that is this way. If you get to make your own reality, we get to what? We get to make ours own too. Yes. So last week I referenced a man who claims to be a brother in Christ. And this is where I got to get busy looking at this. Uh, by the name of Jamar Tisby, okay? And Jamar Tisby is a black man who writes about, about CRT and racial issues in the church. And I came across this quote from Tisby. Ah, oh, what did I do with it? Um, it's on this piece of paper. It's, it's, it's in the analog version. That's why I can't find it. This is Tisby. He was, this was on a podcast that he was being interviewed on. He said this, White Christians have to face the possibility that everything they have learned about how to practice their faith has been designed to explicitly or implicitly reinforce a racist structure. In the end, White Too Long, he's reviewing a book, White Too Long, seems to present a stark choice. Hold on to white Christianity or hold on to Jesus. It cannot be both. We can only speak to our own experience as believers. But I, I, and I have been, I will tell you, I have been in white churches all my life. Just by, based on the fact that I live in the Midwest. Right? I have never heard the gospel presented as this is the white man's gospel. I've heard the gospel presented as you're in desperate need of a savior. And it wasn't because I was white or black or pink or green. Do you understand how this is rewriting the Christian faith and the attempt to rewrite the Christian faith here? So let me give you some theological issues that you need to consider in regard to critical race, intersectionality, wokeness, all these ideas. Let me give you some theological ideas that you need and we need to all wrestle with. Matt, you mentioned it earlier. Number one theological issue that I have with this is, is it distorts the fact that we're image bearers of God. What does Genesis 1 tell us? What's it tell us? In the creation account, what does it specifically say about man? When God creates man, he created them how? In his own image. Okay? What are some of the implications of that? I'm not trying to go really deep, but what does that mean that we're made in the image of God? Sorry. 
some of the theologians in the room are just holding back. Go ahead, just blurt it out. What are, what are the implications of it? Should that have implications for you that you're made in God's image? What's it mean? You're created equal. What? What else? We, we, we have the ability to reflect his attributes. What else does it mean that we're made in God's image? Oh. We all come from just Adam and Eve, right? We come, right? What else? We represent him. What? His breath gave us life. That's all humans, right? There's one race. Okay. Isn't, isn't that why we are so up in arms whenever aborted, babies are aborted? Do they not have value because they're made in God's image? Okay. Critical race, critical race denies some of this. It emphasizes diversity. Okay? What's the problem with emphasizing diversity? Here's the thing. Life, life many times is a really beautiful thing, and when you get around people who are unlike you, who look different than you, who talk different than you, that eat different food than you, do you ever like, find that to be exhilarating to learn from them? What does critical race do? It makes us afraid to cross those racial boundaries, doesn't it? Were you going to say something, Rick? You're... you're It is a self-defeating argument. Because one of the big tenets of critical race theory is this, is that there is no hope of unity. They will flat out teach you that a black man at his very core cannot get along with a white man. It's impossible. It's impossible. Secondly, a second theological issue to deal with. Rather than us being equal before God, this idea of oppressor and oppressed theory makes whiteness, as I mentioned, the original sin. It makes whiteness the original sin. It's inherent. And so rather than, rather than, and what happens is when you bring this into what were at one time gospel preaching churches, this changes the whole thing. Because now, all of you men who raised your hand with me because we fit that demographic, we don't need to repent for our original sin. We have to repent because we're white. What? Yeah, and here's the thing.
skin color doesn't even matter. Ask Larry Elder in California right now. He was accused this week of being the whitest black candidate ever. So it is a social construct. It does, it's not objective. Color of skin doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay? So, so there, there's, there's really... There's, there's no hope for the white person in their gospel. There's no hope. Okay, if someone who espoused critical race theory came in here today and heard what I was saying, you are exactly the problem because you're, you're, you're going against the argument. If you resist the argument, that makes you even more white. Okay, so, so I, I've, referred to a, I've referred to a gentleman who wrote a book, Vody Bauckham, who is as black of a man as you can find. He is thrown in the white category. <laughs> yeah, because you said something, you might be the whitest white person in here. And, 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 and do, you, do you even see from the nature of our discussion here how, how even on our side we can just start to put, pull the, the walls around us and, and, and get very protectionary? And that's anti-gospel too. Thirdly, here's a third theological implication. And somebody look up James chapter 2 and verse 1 for me. CRT and wokeism is racism itself. And that's sinful. The only way to be anti-racist is recognize that you are an incurable racist, is what they would tell you. And it's what it's doing, it's just showing favoritism, which what does God say in James chapter 2 and verse 1? Show no partiality. It's another fancy word for favoritism, right? It is. Don't do don't do this during church. You make good points, but don't do this during church, or I will find you and hunt you and hurt you. But but today, do an internet search for Colorado Springs School Board. A black man addressed the school board about critical race theory. Anybody seen this? It is the most articulate speech in two minutes where he debunks critical race theory in such a way that the school board actually changed their vote. Now, mind you, it was a three to two vote, but they absolutely deep sixed critical race theory. Do a search on it. It's, it's a powerful speech.
Very well done. Good points. Fourth theological issue with critical race theory. And I mentioned this, and, and I just want to bring it up again. Anytime you have a system that produces a cycle of anger and victimhood, which promises compassion, it's only delivering anger and hostility. And here's the thing. The problem with their theology is this. It excuses anger and hostility on the oppressed side. And any gospel system that excuses sin is not true gospel. So I mentioned David Platt last week. I've got to pile on a little this week. Last summer, when, when COVID was huge in Washington, D.C., and everybody was shut down, and David Platt pastors on the outside of Washington, D.C. at McLean Bible Church. I mean, their church was shut down. They were like, you know, abundance of caution, all those words that we heard over and over. He encouraged his church, and he himself marched in a Black Lives Matter rally. Now, which system would produce encouragement and point you to Christ, and which one would produce anger? Do you see a problem with this kind of theology? Okay, yes. I want to read you some quotes. How many of you have ever looked at Black Lives Matter website? Many of you haven't, and so I want to bring you some truth from there. Not truth, but what they say is truth. Which brings me to my fifth theological issue. Critical race theory absolutely affirms evil. Okay, it affirms evil. I'm just going to read to you several quotes. This, this, is, these are, this describes what Black Lives Matter and the radical changes they seek. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Did you hear that? To the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Okay, read between the lines and be discerning, church. What did they just say there? There's no men. What else did they not say? And there's no God. And, and specifically, what, what, what authority structures did God establish on earth? What's the first one he established in the garden? Family. Do you see that there's no family here? The critical race theory is rooted in ideology that is anti-family. Blatantly anti-family. This involves transgender activism. Listen to this quote. We are committed to. Let me, we are committed to. Doing the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk. We are committed to embracing and making space for trans brothers and sisters to participate and lead. Is it biblical? No. It goes on to include the wholesale approval of queerness. We are committed to fostering a queer-affirming network. 
We were in Sam's Club, what was it, Amy, a week ago? When was the last time $150 just disappeared out of our bank account? <laughs> and I just walked out with, I just walked out with like all the, all the, all the Uber snack size stuff, you know? Right on the main aisle where all the Christmas stuff is out for, there is a, there is a package of queer Barbies that you can buy. Aren't they so cute? We are committed to fostering a queer-affirming network where we gather, and when we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Where did, where did the world get the tight grip of heteronormative thinking? Was that God's design? The belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she or he disclose otherwise. This is what they affirm. They came out last year and they said it this way. And I want you to catch just the evil in this one paragraph. Justice as imagined by our organization is not only about ending black racism. Okay, so they've, they've come out and said this publicly, we're not going to stop here. Visions of true justice must include freedom for black people who are queer, transgender, formerly or presently incarcerated, undocumented, or facing any other number of challenges. Are there people who are incarcerated who aren't black who have been unjustly incarcerated? They don't matter because why? They're Hispanic, they're Asian, they're white. We could go on and on. It's coming after Christianity. It's absolutely coming after Christianity. Um, I want to read to you, well, if I can get there, one more quote. And this comes directly out of, out of Bauckham's book. I mentioned to you Jamar Tisby. So, how many of you have heard of a little cartoon called Veggie Tales? <laughs> now we got the theme song going through our head, right? <laughs> Broccoli. All right. So, Phil Vischer was the creator of Veggie Tales, who has since kind of repented for making Veggie Tales. He said it was really not good. But he's also turned into an anti racist activist, and he has a podcast. And he was interviewing Jamar Tisby, and this is what Jamar Tisby said on his podcast. Religious freedom is really code for white Christians being able to do what they want to do. Let me read that again. Religious freedom is really code for white Christians being able to do what they want to do. It doesn't really include Muslims or Jewish people or other religions. This is what he said. Folks, where is the largest Jewish population in the world outside of Israel? (laughs) 
Is it the United States? <laughs> Let's take Cleveland and expand that out a little bit. <laughs> Is it the United States? Bauckham debunks it, and he says this. This statement is patently false, considering the United States has the world's largest Jewish population and has always led the world in religious freedom. Christian leaders in the woke movement are trying to even take away our freedom of religion because they're not satisfied if they can have the freedom of religion with us the only way they're satisfied is when we become the oppressed and they can be the oppressors. And make no mistake, that is the end goal of critical race. There will always, in their minds, there will always be oppressors. They just want to be the oppressors. Now, they won't ever come out and blatantly say it that way. But, but that's the end game for them. And so, please, 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 please do not think that I am standing up here and I'm against the black man. I'm all for the black man. I'm all for man and women and people. But do you understand why this theory and the, and the, the proliferation of this theory is a threat to gospel preaching churches? Do you understand that why, why we as a church have to be very discerning about the associations we make with mission organizations and things like that that espouse this? One of the things that you can do, quite honestly, is pray for the leaders of your church. It is under, directly under our purview to make sure that this stuff doesn't get in. And it can come in in a variety of ways. It can come in in a variety of ways. It can come in innocently in Sunday school curriculum. It can, it can come in, I mean, it could come in in Awana if we're not careful. I mean, and so here's the other thing. If you think you see it, what should you do? What should you do? You should speak up, right? You should say, hey, Paul, Aaron, Dan, Andy, am I seeing what I'm seeing here? Am I missing something here? Is there, can we look at this? I don't think the people at McLean Bible Church five years ago thought that their church was ever going to be split literally in two over racism, even though it was a highly racially diverse church. It's interesting. The, the diverse races were getting along just fine until they got a new pastor. And it's not just that church. How many of you are familiar with Bethlehem Bible Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota? Heard of that church? How many of you heard of a guy named John Piper? That was the church he pastored. That church just this year. Whew. You want to know why? Critical race. And the people that stood up against it were ushered out. Were ushered out. You say, well, we live in Johnstown. Look around, PD. We're about as white as you can get. It's not about being white. It's about being humble and being a follower of Christ, okay? And let's make sure that we understand that. Let's make sure that we understand that it's not about being white or brown or red or black or whatever. It's about being a follower of Christ. I think one of the things I've seen that's working pretty efficiently 
Yeah. No one wants to be known as the racist. That's the last thing anybody wants to be accused of. I leave you with this thought. How many of you have heard a guy named Carl Truman? Carl Truman is a, he's a guy who thinks way up on this level up here. He's a Christian theologian who has, he's from Scotland and is now living in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and is, is the, he's the chair of their theology department, I believe, there at Grove City College. He wrote this, and it just made me think. He says, this brings me to the most serious problem with the way today's conversation about race is happening. It's not happening. That is not merely the result of the brickbats each side hurls at each other. Cultural Marxism, white privilege. There's no conversation because organs such as Christianity Today and other major, major Christian outlets fail to promote respectful and thoughtful engagement. And I say that to say this to us. I don't endorse everything Christianity today writes. Some of it's just pure drivel. But at least they're reporting on stuff. And if they won't even touch the subject, you and I better be prepared to engage and talk about it rationally and not angrily. Like, we're right, you're wrong. Do you have to work hard to defend the truth of this? I would say yes, but also no. It defends itself. What did Spurgeon say about this? It's a lion, just unleash it and let it roar. And my, my admonition to us is, is don't be afraid of the conversation, but don't be afraid to speak truth to the conversation. When you speak truth, speak the word of God. Don't speak it in a punk-like manner, but just speak it as, I believe the Bible to be true, and this is what I believe the Bible says. This is what I know the Bible says. The Bible tells me in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ died to break down the wall of hostility. And, and, and that, that your line of thinking is trying to build walls of hostility, so that's got to be another gospel. Now, they may not like it, but you're not called to make somebody like what the truth of God's word is. You're called to just give the truth of God's word and let the Holy Spirit do the work with it. Any other parting shots? We have to know Scripture. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, hopefully this is what your appetite and you're going to dig a little bit and I'll be available, other elders will be available to answer questions on it. And I may not have all the answers, I'll be honest with you. Stuff is happening so quick. I would say this, you've got to be discerning about who you listen to. You've got to be really discerning. Just because they have a name you recognize may not mean that it's a name you can trust. You're going to say something, Aaron.
If you have kids in public school, let me just admonish you. You need to know what's being taught. You may not be able to change what's being taught this year, but you better know what your kids are hearing. Because they'll be four or five weeks into it and believing what they've already heard, and it's going to take you a while to reprogram. Anything else? And it also emphasizes the importance and the need for what we're doing here, gathering as the church. You're not going to find encouragement and support for the way you think and believe outside these walls. And I'm not saying just this church, but the body of Christ in general. And so we have to, we have to remember that. You think I just badger you to come together every Sunday because I just want to see numbers? No. I know how important it is because I know, I know the world that you live in and I know how you're oppressed and how I'm oppressed in this world. And I also know that if I'm not with other believers, it can get really discouraging really quick. Right? This is why we come together. This is why we do what we do. I don't know. I mean, we may have to go another week. Aaron, you okay if I push you back a week on the start of your ABF? We may have to go another week. I think what we're going to do is we're going to go another week, and there's a couple more things I think I want to delve into. If you have thoughts that you want covered, email me this week, and I'll try to, we'll, maybe we'll just make it a potpourri next week. But um, we'll start with the split ABFs the first Sunday of September. It works out well anyway, because Paul was going to bail the first week when he's supposed to teach. He, <laughs> He's not in here, so everybody just give a to Paul, okay? <laughs> All right. Hey, Dave, would you close us in prayer, please?